Hey, well, good morning, Faith Family. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be with you. I've gotten to be one of the pastors here for quite some time, and the greatest privilege is sharing God's Word. Uh, looking out, definitely some new faces. I, hey, don't forget to say hello to our uh, newest, oldest guest, Sylvia McGuire, back in the church building. All right, glad to have you. We don't usually embarrass first-time guests. No, Sylvia was one of the founding members, and so just glad to have her back. Children ages 5 years old through 5th grade can be dismissed to Bible Explorers. On your way out, make sure you give uh, a friend in the back row a hand. Good to see you, Fiona. What's going on? It's been a while. Man, so uh, it is like a little reunion here. You bring your violin? No. Okay, next time. Next time. We could use it. All right. Well, I'm glad you're here with us. All right. Well, we're in the book of 2 Kings. Page 307 in your pew Bible, if you're using that. And as Doug mentioned, we want you to keep that if you don't have one. And if you are someone who's getting used to the Bible, First and Second Kings used to be one book, okay? And the reason why there's two is because it couldn't all fit on one scroll. And so they just kind of just separated it, and over time it became First and Second Kings. You're going to realize that as we read this, that it just really connects with what's on the prior page. And another thing to help you get used to reading the Bible, we encourage you to leave it on your lap for the whole rest of the service. You'll help to follow along. And the big numbers are the chapters. The small numbers are the verses. And we're going to read those in order. I wasn't raised uh, in a church. And so just knowing a couple of those things uh, can help you out at times with knowing how to get along through the Bible. This passage opens up with a question that you're supposed to know the answer to. Kids, have you ever been asked a question by your mom and dad that you're not actually supposed to answer, but you know what the answer is, and they're only asking it to kind of indict you to say, you should know better. And it's kind of an invitation. It's an indictment, but it's also an invitation to perhaps change your ways. Well, we get that question. We get this question repeated three different times in our passage You can see it here in verse 3. Here's the question. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, if you're our guest, you haven't been tracking with us through the Bible, what you have to know that's behind this question is a really simple truth. God has blessed the people of Israel. If you read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that's his Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant, a promise that he makes with Abraham. And you just see the word bless, 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 bless. God has blessed them. And in your minds, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you'll probably know that God blessed the nation of Israel with land. It's called the promised land. He's fulfilled it. He's given it to them. He brought them out of a land of slavery By his mighty hand, giving them the land of Israel for free. He also gave them his word. Can you just imagine what it would be like to not know what God thinks? What a privilege it is that our God speaks and then he gives us his word. Well, he gave Israel his word in the form of ten commandments. And it wasn't just a bunch of rules. It really was a covenant in which he's promising to be loyal, to be their God. And so Israel becomes his special people in a very special sense. And then later, he promises to give his presence. And it's illustrated in the sense that they build a temple where God says his name will dwell. And finally, he gives them the king that they've wanted. So God's given them land, 
provision, a king, a covenant. God has done all that for them. And you are to feel that kind of like we read this morning in the vineyard passages. All that God did to make that vineyard fruitful. And you would expect loyalty and uh, appreciation that God has blessed you. And this is what God says in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15. And see how well God knows our hearts. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers... Who are they? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he brought you into this land, and he's going to give it to you, and it's going to have great cities and great goods that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, here it is, take care lest you forget the Lord. After all those blessings, you're going to say, how can I forget God? He's given me everything. Well, God says, don't forget him because I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, and he's a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Well, what's the point? Our hearts are prone. Maybe we could even say our hearts want to. Our hearts even want to forget that everything we have is a gift from God. Whatever else you might be thinking of this morning and wherever else your mind is on, you must consider every blessing you have is from God. Psalms 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Why is that in the scriptures? Because we're prone to... Forget every blessing God has given us. So if you're here this morning as a Christian or a non-Christian, you are all have received blessings from God. The first is that you are made in God's image. You have inherent dignity and worth, male and female, equally because God made you in his image. Jesus even says that you've received blessings from God because he makes his reign, yeah, that comes down from heaven, fall on the just and the unjust alike. And so there's no one who hears my voice now who has not received many, many blessings from God. And that's where we must begin if we're going to understand God's question in this passage. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? What's he really asking? Kind of sarcastic, kind of rhetorical. It's a you should know better question. Because he's trying to say this. What else could I do for you? You're going to go after and inquire of a false God as if I'm a God that hasn't spoken to you. Have you forgotten the Ten Commandments? You're a God. You're going to go look for a God that can help you with your health. Have you forgotten that I brought you out of Egypt, that I've healed your land, I've given you these things? Why would you turn somewhere else? My eyes are set on you. My face is set towards you. Will you not look to me when you're in trouble? Friends, this is what we're going to see this morning. There's a king whose name is Ahaziah. And his troubles reveal his true alliance. Ahaziah's troubles reveal his true alliance. Would you listen to the whole passage now? 2 Kings 1, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, 
Go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to him, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to go and inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. And the messengers returned to the king. And he said to them, Why have you returned? Here's what's happening. The king sent them to Ekron from where he's living. It would have been days, if not weeks, to go there, get a word, and come back. But they've returned early. And he's able to do some math. He's going, why are you back so soon? Well, here they say in verse 6. And they said to him, well, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you. And say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore... You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to him, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Now picture in your heads, kids, a police sketch artist, right? Who was this figure? What did he look like? He's going to draw this guy out. Verse 8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair. Drawn a garment of hair on this guy, okay? And what else does he have? He has a leather belt about his waist. It's all he needs, and he knows who this guy is. Ah, he said. It's Elijah, the Tishbite, public enemy number one. Well, then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. Is this a polite RSVP? Oh, I want to accept Elijah into my house. I'm going to go and send 50 soldiers with a captain to his door and invite him over. Friends, how, how would you respond if a letter from our president was sent to you by the hands of 50 Marines and a captain. This is not a polite RSVP. This is, I'm going to silence you. Why else would you send that many soldiers? So they went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of the hill, and said to him, Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. And fire came down from heaven... And consumed him in his fifty. And again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. That's going to help things. But Elijah answered them, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him in his fifty. Now this has all gone on CNN. The rolling headlines. Fifty-one consumed. 51 charred individuals. Next, now we're up to 102 charred individuals. Well, the third captain gets orders from the Pentagon chief of, you know, staff there and says, hey, you're next. I'm sure we'd all love to get that message, right? That you're the next captain to go. So let's see what happens in verse 13. The king, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain fears God more than he fears the king. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Well, then the angel of the Lord did say to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And they said, thus says the Lord. Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, 
You shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Well, friends, that was a troubling passage in which we have at the very end of it 103 people dead. And did you notice that this whole passage is really a movement down? You can feel it. Ahaziah falls, the first thing to go down, his body. And then God tells him he is not going to come down from his bed. Well, he sends people up to Elijah. Where's Elijah? On a hill. There's this kind of contrast between down and up. And so he sends men up to Elijah. But Elijah will not come down. No, instead, what comes down from the sky? Fire of God. And then the passage ends with Ahaziah going down, down, down to the point of death under God's judgment. Where the next chapter, if you, flick o- if you flip over and just look at the heading on your Bible, Elijah is not taken down. Where is he taken? Up to heaven and chariots of fire. Friends, there is a way that leads down to death. And there is a way that leads up to life. And this morning we're going to see that our lives will go down in an avalanche when we don't recognize the real God, rely on the real God, and repent before the real God. Here's a sermon in a nutshell. In order to avoid the avalanche of Ahaziah, you need to recognize the real God, rely on the real God, and repent before the real God. First, to avoid the avalanche of Ahaziah, Recognize the real God. We have to recognize the real God. And uh, we see that Ahaziah did not. And part of it is because of his pedigree. Flip back in your Bibles to 1 Kings, just that last chapter, 22, looking at 51 through 53. We see the lineage of Ahaziah. Look at 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he only reigned two years over Israel. Verse 52. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father and the ways of his mother. And the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal. He worshipped him. And provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Well, who's his dad? King Ahab. Man, last, last week we were glad to see that Ahab is finally dead. But here's the bad news. Ahab Jr. takes his place. He really is a chip off the old block. Because Ahab and Jezebel misled the whole nation into idolatry. And you might think, what could be worse than leading a whole nation into idolatry? Well, how about leading their very own son into idolatry? They misled their son. Ahaziah follows hot on the heels of his parents in their idol worship. The apple has not landed far from the tree. He is just simply following the idolatry of his parents. Like father, like son. He must have been watching his parents, right? Where do they run when they are in trouble, when when there is a problem? Who do you seek counsel from as parents? Careful, right? Our kids are always watching. And so he grew up walking in their way. Very simply, faith family, children imitate the faith of their parents. Sure, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, a time of stretching, perhaps even into the college age group. 
But most likely, like a rubber band, kids might stretch and pull here and there, but they often, at the very end, kind of gain the same shape of their parents' life. So it should be an encouragement, mom and dad, that children imitate your faith. They know where you turn when there's a problem. They, they listen to who you seek counsel from. And Ahaziah sought counsel from Baal. Baal was not something new to him, that false god. In fact, he was nursed in it. And it doesn't really sound too new to us, does it? You read 1 Kings, then you flip over to 2 Kings, and it just seems like an endless story of kings who lead their nation into sin. And that's, that's what it sounds like. So faith family, we have to ask ourselves this question. Are you helping others recognize the real God? Your life, you're a big arrow, pointing somewhere. You don't have a choice. Can you pointing up to the Lord? Can pointing to yourself? But are you helping others recognize the real God? Or are you distracting people from following the Lord? For leaders, well, we see here that a whole nation can go astray because of who the king is. And the sins of leaders often have tragic consequences for those that follow them. Now, the most likely connection between Israel today and how we should apply it is not the United States of America. We are not a theocracy. We should not read this passage and go, oh, let's apply this to America. No, probably the most likely connection that we could make between this passage and where we are is, is the church. New Testament, James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Right? Those who are leaders among God's people have a responsibility to protect God's name and to be a blessing to the people. Now, our protection and our blessing come from the same source. Our protection is ultimately from the Holy Spirit as he guides us into recognizing the real God by understanding his word. Right? The Holy Spirit protects the church and the purity of the church by helping us rightly understand who the real God is by understanding his word. Did you know that the kings in the Old Testament were actually to write out their own Bible by hand? Because the health of the nation depended upon the king recognizing the real God and following him. And so how do we have a congregation that can remain faithful to God decade after decade and not pivot to the culture points of this world? It's by feeding the congregation God's word. Faith family, I mean, it doesn't seem too much when every week goes by that a new organization, this week, right? What was it? Uh, an adoption agency called Bethany comes out and says that they don't support marriage as defined in the Bible anymore. Week after week, you're not surprised to hear a new story. Why? Because somewhere along the way, their leaders stop feeding their people God's word. And so leaders need to be people whose lives are regulated by God's word. We have to live according to it so that we don't lead you into sin. And faith family, you know that we're looking for a new family pastor. We're, we're looking to add someone to our staff. And we're not looking for someone to be flashy. We want him to splash into God's word. Right? That's what we're looking for. Not a certain age, not a certain style. Not, oh, he's going to relate so well with the youth. No. Is he controlled by the word of God? Does he love diving in? Does he love sharing it? Does he base it upon God's word? It is to that we come hungry. So we organize our service and we give it 30 minutes, 40 minutes of the Bible open. That's our priority as a church. And so we're asking that God would preserve us who are leaders in this church, that he would provide for us new leaders that are committed to his word. 
Now that might make some of you in here go, yeah, that, that, that's good. I, we, we need that. Others of you are like, wow, this whole message is about kings and leaders and churches. I'm just a guest. I mean, what does this have to do with me? And perhaps, I don't know you that well if you're a guest, but my guess is that Fiona and friends have not led the whole nation into idolatry. No? Okay. Have you led a whole church into idolatry? Not, not yet. Okay, good. So, so how does this relate? Well, this is how it relates. I would challenge you that maybe you haven't led a whole church or a whole nation into idolatry. Perhaps you've been a participant in idolatry. You know how you know if you participate in idolatry at least once in your life? is if there has been something more important in your life than God. If you have ever given your heart's affection or your heart's allegiance to something more than God, that's your idol. It doesn't have to be made of wood. Don't be mistaken. All of us in here are worshiping something. And if it's not God, it's a dead end. It's a dead end. Our real religion will be exposed when you notice what you rely on. What do you rely on? Your looks? Your beauty? Your status? Your bank account? Your hard work ethic? Your training? Well, your true religion will be exposed when you notice what you rely on. I'm reminded of a story in Sherlock Holmes. It's the story of the scandal in Bohemia in which Sherlock needs to discover the whereabouts of a secret possession of a lady named Irene Adler. Now, she keeps it hidden somewhere in the house, and as only Sherlock Holmes could do, he finds a way to discover her possession. We love mysteries in the Owens household, okay? And so he gets into her house, and he fakes a fire. And she sees smoke. She smells smoke. And guess what she does? He knew that as soon as she had trouble in her life, it would reveal where her secret treasured possession was. She'd want to keep it safe. So in your life, when there's trouble that comes, where your feet run to first probably lets you know where your treasure is. And it worked just like that. She thought she smelled fire. It was a fake one. She goes and she runs to where the hidden safe was and untakes the possession. And Sherlock Holmes is able to get it and put it into the hands of the rightful person. Well, let's see what Ahaziah teaches us next. Ahaziah has problems. There's a fire in his life, and he doesn't run to rely upon God. No, he runs to rely upon Beelzebub. So here's our second point. To avoid the avalanche of Ahaziah, rely on the real God. Well, what are his problems? If you flip back to 1 Kings 22, verses 41 through the end, you'll see that he had an economic venture with a king whose name was Jehoshaphat. And they decided to build some vessels together, but unfortunately they all sunk. So he has some economic problems. Then he has political problems. Look at verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 1. So 2 Kings 1.1, 1, 1, we see that Moab rebelled against Israel. He has political problems. And then finally, we read in verse 2 that he falls through his lattice, so he has some physical problems. His life is not smooth sailing. Can you relate? I think so. Are there things in your life that are not turning out the way that you expected? That is to be human. Maybe financially, relationally, medically, things aren't going the way that you would like. And Henry David Thoreau said, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. The mass of men, most of us, live lives of quiet desperation. Do you feel like King Ahaziah, who has reasons to live in quiet desperation? 
I turn this way, I got political problems. I turn that way, I got financial problems. Now I have health problems. Where do I turn for help? Well, he makes a beeline for Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. That's what we see here in verse 2. Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from sickness. Now, any king in Israel should have known that Ekron was one of the places that the Ark of the Covenant went when the Philistines captured the Ark. Remember those stories? You can go back this afternoon and you can read 1 Samuel 5 and 6. Two wonderful chapters. And so the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. They come and they bring it into their temple of their false gods. And here's what happens. They have a false god whose name is Dagon. And every day they walk in there and they find the idol's been toppled over. Arms broken, symbolizing he's helpless. He can't do anything. Head knocked off, symbolizing he's not really real. He's dead. Idols are dead. False gods are dead. It's a dead end to worship them. And then the whole town gets tumors. So think with me, friends, okay? Who in their right mind would go to the god of Ekron of all places to find answers for your health problem? He couldn't protect his people from tumors, and he's fall down the ground before the Ark of the Covenant day in and day out. Well, as stupid as that might sound, it's worth looking over your last week, or perhaps looking over your last year. Where do you turn for answers? Where do you turn for guidance? Where do you turn for life? Friends, this passage would stand out against and warn you against zodiac signs or horoscopes. It is becoming increasingly popular among Christians to consult those things, to know about what your sign is, and to read those, because we all like to feel some semblance of control of the future, even if it comes from a dark place. Faith family, a Christian should not consult mediums, zodiac, read zodiac signs, or horoscopes. And you say, oh, Josh, I got that one. That is pretty easy. Well, a word to the warning, a word to the wise is sufficient. But maybe you turn to other places a little more subtle. Let me ask you this. What do you listen to on your commute to work? Are you making room in your commute to actually hear from God? Think about yourself as you're in your commute. Whose influence are you putting yourself under? All it takes is turning it on. And it will give you cues to how you should think about your world. Whether it's conservative talk radio, whether it's sports radio... Or it's the wolf, 93.3, whatever it might be. We are putting ourselves underneath that. We're being influenced by it. And friends, don't think that we are so much better than Ahaziah and that, oh, I would never turn to now. We have more places to turn than Ahaziah did. And who you listen to shows who you value the most. So are you giving yourself opportunities to hear from the Lord? If you're not listening to the God of this word, you will be listening to the false gods of this world. Now, there's no reason why Ahaziah actually thinks that Beelzebub would have any answers. Did you track that? The, this text does not give us any evidence why Ahaziah would turn there in the first place. Why does he even have any hope? But what's the point? Doesn't that show us how idols are not quickly abandoned even after they are exposed as false? Wasn't it just several weeks ago that it was revealed and exposed as false. The gods of Baal were nothing. I mean, wasn't Mount Carmel enough to show that this idol is completely fake? All those prophets dead. God sends fire down. Baal does not. 
And yet he still turns there. Why? Well, in our own lives, we realize that sin is irrational and that we pursue idols even when they've been exposed as false and harmful. Friends, worshiping another god is a dead end, and sin is irrational. And ours is just as foolish as Ahaziah's. We know that our idols are deaf, mute, and dead. And they've probably been exposed in your life like they have in my life many times over. And yet we see that we still rely upon them and that sin is irrational. I had a conversation yesterday with a couple of moms and dads uh, about youth group. And we were talking about kids driving. Remember those days when your kids were driving? Maybe you're in those days, teens. My first car to drive was a Chevy Suburban in Washington, D.C. A V8 Chevy Suburban. The biggest car on the road. The excursion was not made yet. I'm dating myself, okay, right? And this huge car. And my mom used to let me used to let me drive her to the bus stop, drop her off so she could get a ride into D.C. so I could have the car the rest of the afternoon. That probably answers why I am the way that I am. Some of you are like, yeah, that, that, that we, we are doing some math, okay? <laughs> and so I remember driving on the road with my mom. And she would still get nervous as a 15-and-a-half-year-old boy, 16-year-old boy, was driving a Chevy Suburban in Northern Virginia. And every now and again, when she got really nervous, her hands would go over to the windshield, both hands like this. And she'd put her fingernails into the rubber of the windshield. And she'd begin to hold on to that. And I said, Mom, don't you trust me? Oh, yeah, I trust you, Josh. Then, then, then why are you holding on to the side of the windshield now obviously right of all the places to hold on to in a Chevy Suburban at 60 miles an hour in northern Virginia Washington DC rush hour traffic it, this is not going to save you it is irrational to think that somehow holding on to the rubber of the inside of the passenger windshield is going to protect you if we have a collision I mean, grab the handle, put a five-point harness on, wear a helmet when I'm driving, but this? And God is saying the same thing to us. You are grabbing on to your beauty, your status, your checking account, your savings account, your job. That's that's what you're going to look when you're in trouble. That's what you're going to run to. You're going to have a head-on collision with eternity, and you think the rubber of a windshield's going to hold you through this? It's irrational. It's stupid. And it provokes the Lord to anger. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Ahaz, the king of Samaria, and say to him, It is because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Did you notice the word therefore? It's in verse 4. Now, therefore, in light of what you've done, here's the consequence. His attempted cure is worse than his disease. And so we hear the refrain three times, four, six, and 16, you shall surely die. And when you read this passage, I want to ask you, friend, is it surprising to you that God is infuriated by your idolatry? Do you find it surprising that God is infuriated by idolatry? Inquiring of a false god incites the anger 
of a true God. And if you've read this passage, you're an honest person, you're thinking and you're rational. You might even have a moment where you recoil in horror that 102 people have charred remains and one extra person dies at the end. So in the end of 18 verses, we have 103 people die. 102 of which seem pretty innocent. You're probably wondering, if you're not a Christian, why do so many people have to die? Even if you are a Christian, you might be wondering, why do so many people have to die? Is it because Elijah's cranky? No. It is because God is bringing the divine judgment. Five times, the fire is mentioned as coming down from where? Heaven. And in case you don't know who is responsible for it, verse 12, the narrator seems to go out of his way to let you know it's not Elijah. Verse 12 says, then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. God is responsible for 102 charred remains. Now that is not a view that people like to have of God. And if that's you, I want to level with you. As sinners, it is in your interest to believe that God does not punish sin. Friends, you don't come here innocent. You don't come here as a blank page. And you want to believe, just by your natural default position of walking in, that God won't punish your sins. You have an interest in not wanting to believe that. You also have an interest in trying to define God's character in such a way that you are not responsible for your sins. Oh, God will see that it was really my parents' fault, and it was because of my brother, or it was because of this friend here. And you have an interest in seeing that God's not going to hold you responsible. But this story stands in direct opposition to your desire. So you have to come face to face with this. Have you considered your own sin? Not as it just appears to you, but as it appears before a holy God. I wonder if I've been talking about sin. Is there anything that's come to mind? Are there things? Not the things that people have done against you. We are quick to bring to the front of our mind when we think about sin, all the ways we've been sinned against. When you get in a fight as a couple, married people... Is it quick to come to the front of your mind all that you have done? Or is it quick to come to mind all that your spouse has done? Well, I'm asking you not how have you been sinned against. I'm asking you, are there things that you're currently involved in, things that you are doing that are wrong? And if the answer is yes, if there's been anything you have ever done that is wrong, it shouldn't require too much humility. Have you considered the punishment that you deserve? For our sins against God deserve more punishment than we could ever receive. That might sound harsh to you, but I'm going to say it again. Our sins against God deserve more punishment than we could ever receive. And so the question is not, is God fair? The question this passage wants you to ask is, is there any hope? And the third captain is a picture of hope. To avoid the avalanche of Ahaziah, repent before the real God. Look at how this captain is a picture of hope in his repentance. Verse 13, again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life, 
the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. You know, Ahaziah is a warning, but this third captain here should be an encouragement to you because he takes a different course of action. Did you notice gone is the pretension that he is in control? Come down and come down quickly. No, there's no more pronouncements. This captain just pleads, would you have mercy on my life? You might hear that in the New Testament. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He stands in contrast to Ahaziah. And I wonder, are you more like Ahaziah or the third captain? If you're here and you're an Ahaziah, it means that you've heard the gospel again and again and again and again. And you've stuck like glue to your idols. And he dies according to the word of the Lord. And he has no sons. Did you notice that in verse 17? I don't know why that's mentioned. But could it be that Jehoram, who had Ahab, who is a wicked king, who has Ahaziah, who follows in his steps, what if God just said, you know, we're done with that line? I don't know. But he has chances to change his ways. He has chances to repent. Did you notice that God sends him at least two shots over the bow to get him to bow? Now, if you've ever had somebody rebuke you and correct you, let me just ask you, do you like that? Anybody in here like being corrected and reproved? Teenager? Spouse? Anybody? Like being called out? No. But correction is a forerunner to repentance. In 2 Kings 1, 5 through 8, Ahaziah, his intention is to inquire of a false god, but God intercepts and intervenes, and he gives him this interrogative, this question, is it because there's no other god for you to turn to? And the Lord's question is an indictment. You should know better. But it also is an invitation. There is a god that's living that you could turn to. Now, what Ahaziah does is that he ignores the message because he wants to intimidate the messenger. Go send 50 people and a captain to that guy's house. We're going to silence the word of God. But on the other hand, you have this contrite captain who stands as a right response of how we are to deal with the Lord. He knows that judgment is coming, and he bows down, and he cries out for mercy. That's the picture of how we are to approach God. Our God cannot be intimidated, demanded of, or commanded. That's not how he's approached. Faith family, there is a judgment coming. And if you know that the word of the Lord is sure and will not fail, then we must respond in humble repentance. I must tell you, apart from repentance, there is no salvation. So as we prepare for the Lord's table, which we're going to do, the cross helps you see way more than this captain could ever see. If you fast forward... You'll know this. Those of you that have eyes to see, every instance of judgment in the Bible is a prefiguring of the ultimate judgment to come. If this causes you to wake up a little bit, it's just a little small shadow of what is to come. When we stand before God's judgment, here's the question. Who will bear God's righteous and certain punishment for your sins? When you stand before the judgment, 
Who will bear God's righteous and certain punishment for your sins? Someone will. It won't be the President of the United States. It will not be your parents. It will not be me for you. No, ultimately, the only substitute that there is or ever has been is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only substitute. He came to earth and he lived a perfect life requiring no punishment. God's justice did not need to present him to death. Yet he willingly took the punishment for all the sins of all the people who would turn and trust in God. And unless you believe in judgment, you will never know how much God loves you. So if you're here as a skeptic and you say, I don't want to believe in a God of judgment, then you will never know that there is a God of love. Because if, I, if you say, oh, I believe that God loves me, great. What did it cost him? How much? How do you know? You have nothing to measure it against. You see, God's love is measured against the depth of his fury. And so when you think about how much did God love you, you have to say, well, what did it do for him to show his love? Well, he sent his son and his son absorbed the wrath of God, eternity in hell. He, he took that judgment, and because he went to that extreme, wow, what love I must have from the love of God. And so his judgment is only an indicator of his love. And the good news is, in Christ's first coming, he came to bear our judgment instead of bring judgment. And our only hope is that Christ Jesus would be our substitute. And if you, while there is time, repent and rely upon and recognize this real God, then you too can avoid this irreversible, final, incontestable future judgment. That's the good news Christians have. If you came here for church looking for something else, that is the only good news we have for you. It's the only thing that we offer in this church. While kings led their people into sin, Jesus Christ, because of God's punishment, is the only king to lead people out of their sins. And Christ's death was, would be for you if you will repent and trust in Christ for your sins. So would you recognize the real God, rely on the real God, and repent before the real God? As you do that, we'll stand and sing Amazing Grace. David, would you come up and lead that with the team? As you're thinking about those words, we think about just how great our sin was. But God's grace was greater in overcoming them, shown in Christ's death and resurrection. Thanks, David and Sarah.